I decided this being Father's Day, what I would do is interrupt our regularly scheduled programming in Romans 13 and offer you a sermon on the gospel and fatherhood. Now, this is not just for dads. Uh, this is for us all. Uh, we'll take some things in here through the lens of fatherhood. And I'm taking Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 as our text. It was my own father's life verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 reads, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's God's word, and this verse is a rather fatherly statement in form when you think about it. He writes in fatherly affection for the people, just, just so that you don't take a verse and isolate it from his context. Let's, let's at least notice where it's sitting. The fatherly form here, verse 7, if you're looking at Philippians 1, he says, I hold you in my heart. It's a fatherly kind of statement. Verse 8, he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, a fatherly kind of statement. In fact, if you go over to chapter 2, verse 22, uh, he talks about Timothy's proven worth as a son to a father. He's labored with Timothy in the gospel. And here in chapter 1, what Paul's doing is he's thanking this church. He's thanking God through them for their partnership in the gospel. He says so specifically in verse 5. But then in verse 6, he expresses this confidence that God will finish what he starts. Now, this is not about fatherhood, this particular verse of Scripture, this text. But fatherhood is a role in which God does this thing that he says he'll do for us. Fatherhood is one of many roles. Motherhood is a role. Our vocations are roles. Uh, uh, things that we do in the community are our roles. But fatherhood is a role. God does this good work in and through. And this being Father's Day, I think it's, it's a good moment for us to, to think about this from a couple of different angles. What I'm going to do with this today is not unrelated to where we've been the last couple Sundays in Romans 13. If you're just joining us, we're actually in a series, Romans 12 through 16. We've been in Romans 13 the last couple of weeks. And uh, where we've been there is we've been talking about uh, governing authorities. And where we're going in Romans 13 next week also coincides with Philippians 1.6 because we'll pick Romans 13 up next week in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is near to us now. And we first believe that's Romans 13, 11, where we'll go next week when we rejoin Romans 13. But when he talks about waking from sleep and the time is near, what is he talking about? He's talking about the day of Jesus Christ, his return, as it's put here in Philippians 1, 6. But where we've been in Romans 13 for the last couple of Sundays, we've been considering submission to governing authorities. And it seems to me as I think it out what fatherhood is, fatherhood itself is an act of submission. Now, fatherhood is authoritative. It's authoritative role, certainly. But fatherhood is also an act of submission in that it begins when you submit to the news that you're going to be a father, whether you're ready for it or not, baby's coming. Uh, and it uh, continues all the way through raising and releasing our children out into the world. Fatherhood involves its own kind of submission, including to how God uses fatherhood 
to work in us, both in our having fathers, being sons and daughters as we've been, and also in being fathers ourselves, a number of us in the room. But this good work that Paul says God started in us, Philippians 1.6, he started this good work in us in Christ Jesus. He'll continue it until Jesus returns and, and even beyond. This good work is, the good work itself is submitting us to Jesus through God's initiative to save us so that his way, his truth, his life becomes ours. And what God starts, he'll finish. But he does so in and through all kinds of roles, including fatherhood. That's the connection. I'm not up here today to process. Don't fear that, uh, given where I've been the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to process where I've been as a father myself. I'm not going to process... Um, what it's like to be a fatherless son now, my dad uh, dying this year back in March. I'm up here to preach the gospel. If I want to process, I'll write a book. Hopefully my preaching won't sound preachy in that what often happens uh, at Father's Day messages is that preachers come at fathers. And the last thing any dad in this room needs is some preacher shaming you. It's not all hard work, fatherhood. There is some fun in it. There's some reward to it. I mean, we, we, we've given you bacon today uh, when you went into the fellowship hall. Hopefully you caught that. That was for you. It is hard work in certain respects. Fatherhood is. And yet fatherhood is a good work in itself. It's God's own good and hard work, he being our heavenly father. But most dads in here are doing the best that we know how to do. And we were raised by guys who were also doing the best they knew how to do, even if they didn't, even if they were terribly flawed. Times change, and with that expectations, expectations of fathers change. Joseph Epstein is one of my favorite writers, and in one of his essays, he contrasts his dad's generation with his son's generation. This is an essay on fatherhood. He says, the generation of my father, men born in the first decade of the 20th century, who came into their maturity during the Depression, the generation of my father was distinctly pre-psychological. In practice, this meant that such notions as insecurity, depression, or inadequacy of any sort did not signify as anything more than momentary lapses to be overcome by hitching up one's trousers and getting back to work. My father and I did not hug, we did not kiss, we did not say I love you to each other. This may seem strangely distant, even cold, to a generation of huggers, sharers, and deep dish carers. No deprivation was entailed here, please believe me. We didn't have to do any of these things, my father and I. The fact was I loved my father and I knew he loved me. But by the time I had children of my own, and now with my son, his children, Psychology has conquered with strong repercussions for child-rearing. That's right. And in those repercussions, we presently live and move and have our being. But be that as it may, however challenging we might find fatherhood to be, uh, all the arguing over manhood in general in our culture, where I want to take us this morning is two considerations, how the, the gospel forms fathers and fatherhood. And we'll come at this from two uh, angles. 
Uh, we'll come at this first by way of considering how the gospel teaches us all to distinguish between responsibility and control, which is particularly uh, good for fathers to have this distinguished for us. And then the second consideration is how the gospel teaches us to combine authority and vulnerability, which is also important for fathers in particular. So two considerations today. First, we're going to consider how the gospel teaches us all, but we'll zero this in to, to fathers, how the gospel teaches us to distinguish between responsibility and control. And then our second consideration is how the gospel teaches us to combine authority and vulnerability, and that'll be, that'll be our message. First, how the gospel teaches us to distinguish between responsibility and control, which again is, is particularly applicable to uh, fathers. As I mentioned, fatherhood is God's own good and hard work, hard for God in that God's children have divided hearts. God knows this of us better than anyone. God feels our draw to rebellion every day. Nothing is too hard for God, of course, but for sake of point, you follow. And fatherhood is also God's good work, his own good work, in that the gospel we believe originates in God being a heavenly father who wants to bring many sons and daughters to glory. In fact, you remember back over in Romans 8 how Paul writes about this back there? I'm thinking specifically of verses 15 and following. This is Romans 8. Verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And fatherhood, by the way, is going to give you some opportunities to suffer with him. The sufferings that are unique to loving people, you learn, and you learn this either all at once or slowly over time or a little bit of both, people you do not actually control. Though they come from you, though they belong to you, though they have your name on them, you don't control them. Now, I could say to you today, those of you who are fathers from this first consideration that responsibility and control are not the same things, I could say to you, uh, dads, if you don't learn the difference between responsibility and control, uh, you'll be overbearing. Uh, don't, uh, don't domineer. You'll embitter your children if you lord over them. And all that is true. And we could go that way with this. Many do. Or we could come at it this way, that the gospel tells us how to be saved. It is a message that is directly involved in, in how we in our sin can be made right with one who is sinless, the Lord our God. So the gospel tells us how to be saved, but it also teaches us, the gospel does, how to distinguish responsibility from control because while God is responsible for us, he doesn't control us in the sense of being overbearing or domineering with any of us. And so what I'm taught by that is if God doesn't control me that way, then what am I doing trying to control somebody that way, namely my kids? I don't have to. If God's not that way, the gospel teaches me why well, I, I don't have to be that way. 
The gospel actually liberates us from every wrong conception of God, including that God is just there to boss everybody around. What did we learn all the way back in Romans 2? That it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us out of sin. This is God's strength that he can do this out of kindness. God can be severe. Discipline is a severe mercy. But his way in being a father to us is not to control our every movement. I'm giving up nothing for the, of the sovereignty of God for saying this. What God does is shows us his son... Christ the Lord and calls us to him. He confronts us by showing us the good way, the right way, the just way, taking us again and again to the one who perfected it, Jesus, and patiently working Jesus' character into our own. Why doesn't God just program us to do what he wants us to do? Why doesn't God just force us to grow? Because that would be control. And that's not God's way with us. I'm not saying God has no control over us. Of course I'm not saying that. I'm saying responsibility for someone is not the same thing as controlling their every movement, thought, action, etc. And exhibit A for this, look at God's own way with us. Now let's bring this home. Whenever I think I failed a child of mine, I have five children... Whenever I have failed them, uh, whenever they've seen a flaw in me and it gnaws at me, I feel guilt, as do many of you fathers in the room. And I think, well, maybe I've really messed it up now. Maybe I've scarred them. They're going to hold this over me. They're going to blame me. And you know what? Maybe they will. I cannot actually control that. I cannot control whether uh, my children hold anything over me or not, though I'm responsible for them. I can really only control whether I hold anything over them or not. God has promised to complete the work he began in me and in you. Not because he's controlling, but because he has taken responsibility for us. And he knew Knowing all things as he does, God knew I would be a father to five very different children and that his purposes for me included working in me in fatherhood, using fatherhood in my life, for my life in Christ, not accidentally but intentionally on purpose to work in me and on me. And that even my bad job at it at times would not set back his good work such as those times when I know, and there's times I haven't been aware, my wife has had to say, look what you did, you know, you can't say that. I remember the first time my wife pulled me close when we had young daughters, little girls, and said, honey, you can't say to a little girl, daddy wants you to get over it now. It just doesn't work. Even my bad job at this at times 
And I'm thankful. I, I think my, my kids would on balance say, Dad, you've, you've done a good job. I mean, they have said that, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be boastful in that. I'm just trying to set this in a context. But, but I'm, you're hardest on yourself. And I know my faults and my flaws, and they've seen them. And I hate that. But what keeps that from crushing me, that I can and do and have failed my kids at times, what keeps that from crushing me is truth like I've got here in Philippians 1.6. That there's no point at which God's ever going to say, that's it, Huffman. I'm done with you. I've had it. You've got to be the stupidest guy I've ever brought to faith in Christ. He doesn't do that. I find refuge in this. My own father found refuge in this too. A man who was, who, who was well acquainted with his faults and flaws. I mentioned to you this was his own life verse. Dad, love this verse. I'm sure of this, that he began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He prayed that verse. He loved that verse. He took refuge in that verse. And I do too. So what, what's the direct implication of Philippians 1.6 to fatherhood? If we believe God's promise that he will finish the work he started in us in Christ, then I know there is nothing about my failures that throws God off. Nothing. And that's good news. He took responsibility for me, which means he will see me through to the end. And this includes my faults and my flaws as a father. Uh, just to list my own fatherhood sins, my impatience, my inconsistency, my dismissiveness, my negligence, my orneriness. Uh, just yesterday, I was driving in my truck with my daughter, Holly, who's 18, heading off to college this fall. And we're driving in this place where a gate is closing. I don't see it closing. And it takes the rearview mirror right off my toe. And out of your preacher friend here came a litany of uh, words that, uh, you know, Holly doesn't need to hear. Where I wanted to reach over and cover her ears, but I'm the one saying it. Uh, because I was surprised. I was shocked, you know. I mean, suddenly you're driving through a gate and it's like you know, and if Sean Wilkins is in here, brother, I got to call your office again. Uh, between Holly, Helen, and me, we have uh, upped our rates uh, terribly. I got to make another claim because I got to have that. I got to have that mirror. I'm going to Colorado next week and towing a U-Haul. I got to have it. So this week, it's it's got to be fixed. Um, but I feel bad for that. I do feel bad for that. I, I feel bad that any of that junk is still in me. But here's what I feel good about. God doesn't hold our sins over us. There are consequences, sure. I, I'm, I, I can't boast in that my kids have never heard me uh, say anything uh, terrible. And I, and I wish they hadn't. But the good news the gospel proclaims is God doesn't hold our sins over us. Our kids may. And that's painful. And they may feel they have good reasons. And, and th this, is a, this is a wide uh, frame of reference here. But kids aren't God. Don't worship them. I hung some stuff over my dad, and it, and it pained him that I did that. My dad was a man in Christ. But, but I tell you, that fellow could make me madder than anybody else on this earth. And I could make him mad. And yet, you know where I learned that God doesn't hold our sins over us from my dad. He taught me that. I went to seminary and studied theology, but I already knew 
because of what my dad taught me about the good grace of the God he loved, that God didn't hold my dad's sins over him. He didn't hold mine over me. Why not? The gospel teaches us that God takes responsibility for us without controlling us. And here's the, here's the payoff statement. The reason this is important is because controllers hold your sins over you. If I hold your sins over you, it's because I need to control you in some way. And I use that as a leverage point. I want to feel like I have you, but God isn't like that. He's not a puppeteer. He's a father. Not an overbearing one, but a gracious one, self-giving until it hurts. He's not indulgent with us in our sins, but he does lavish his grace on us. He disciplines us when we have set ourselves to, in essence, make him, because there's no other way. But that's because if he didn't discipline us, then he would be indifferent, and that's the opposite of love, indifference. What makes me want to be a better father is not going to a conference on it or, or listening to a sermon or a podcast about it, however valuable any of that may be, and it is valuable. I'm not discounting that at all. I'm just saying to you what, what makes me want to be a better father, it's not reading good books. This year, losing my dad, I read, I've read a lot of memoirs, guys writing about their fathers, women writing about their, their fathers. And reading all those memoirs, you read experiences of, of, of good fatherhood, experiences of bad fatherhood, and the, the scars and the woundings and all of that, and, and the great memories and, and, and all of it. What makes me want to be a better father is God's promise to me that he is using even my fatherhood to complete this good work that he started in me. That it intentionally comes through this experience, not around it, not over it, it's not incidental to it. If I know anyone's failures and faults best, it's my own family. My kids, I know what their failures are. I know what their faults are. But I know my own also. And this takes me to our second consideration. How the gospel teaches us to combine authority and vulnerability. What I should say is the gospel shows us how God combines this in his own person, and he's a perfect father. He combines authority and vulnerability in his own person. So then whatever else good fathering is, it will combine authority and vulnerability. We all know what authority is. Vulnerability is, is being open to the possibility of loss, open to the possibility of wounding. That's what it means to be vulnerable. And it's not one or the other, authority or vulnerability. I mean, you know this. I'm not going to tell you anything here that you don't already understand. If we dads, uh, if we are only and always authoritarian at home in relationship to our kids, we may run a tight ship, but I guarantee you there's some crew that want to jump overboard or want to get off of the next port and escape. If you're overbearing, you know this, if you're overbearing, you have a better than average chance of embittering your children. You just do. They get sick of it. But to have no authority is not better. If you have authority without vulnerability, you're an authoritarian. Authority without vulnerability equates to authoritarianism. But to have vulnerability with no authority is to be powerless, is to be taken advantage of. That's not better. You need both. 
What would you think of Jesus if he was only and always authoritative? Can you get close to that? What would you think of Jesus if he was only and always vulnerable? Do you have any confidence in someone who's essentially powerless, who can empathize with you, offer you a shoulder, but can't do anything about it? We prize Jesus and we love Jesus for combining both authority and vulnerability in his person. He brought his power near to us. The beauty of the gospel is it holds out to us a justified relationship with the most powerful persona in the universe. He used his power in service to us. Philippians 2, if you, if you keep reading through Philippians and you, you see the reference to he humbled himself. And humility is about the right use of power. He brought his power near. He used his power to serve us, to we who tried to throw it back in his face. And the gospel is clear. We could, we could pay for that. We could be held liable to that. He has the authority to make us pay. Or he could pay for that. And that's what he did. Again, to be vulnerable means you open yourself to the possibility of loss or wounding. You know, that's exactly what happens to you when you become a father, whether you recognize it or not. When you become a father, you enter <laughs> this avenue of life where you are now open and laid bare before your kids, even if you try to hide from them. To love your kids is to be open to being uh, wounded by them, to losing relationship with them, losing them in some way. This happens when you become a father. To say that our Heavenly Father has authority is no news flash. You all know this. He has unparalleled authority and power. And yet, you know why He's never authoritarian? Because He doesn't fear loss. He doesn't fear being wounded. I mean, think about it. Unparalleled authority. The majesty of God. The one who's in charge of it all. And yet he doesn't fear loss. He doesn't fear wounding. That's why he's not authoritarian. One of the things we submit to as fathers is the possibility of being wounded by the kids that we raise. And if you say, no way, pastor, not me. I'm taking the necessary steps for that to never happen to me. I've heard your story. You know, that's not going to happen. I'm praying against it. I'm raising him right. I'll protect him. I'm sure you are. And that's very good, except you got a lot of fear tied up in you. And I do too, frankly. But a lot of that fear has been knocked out of me. You cannot live your life fearing loss or wounding. And that's one of the things we learn having kids. I cannot live my life fearful of loss or wounding. I just can't. When our oldest son was in rehab and we were um, there for a parent uh, weekend, they take you through a lot of things. They teach parents. And uh, there was a couple uh, hosting. They, ho they hosted this group. It was in uh, Nashville. And they hosted this group every Tuesday night or something. And they, and they let the parents that were there that week come in and, and sit in on this. And in the group was a, a woman from Las Vegas. I haven't forgotten this. She was a single mom. And she had brought, brought her 17-year-old there to, to rehab to deal with a drug problem. And she was angry. 
And the couple that was hosting the, the group have one son, and he's in prison. And they tell their story. This guy is a, is a high up in country music. He's not an artist, but he knows all the artists. And, and their son was a drug dealer, and he got finally uh, in and out of trouble with the law, and he got this long prison sentence. And they say, you know, today we don't like going to prison to see him, but when we go to prison, he looks so good. He's in his right mind. He talks to us. We have good visits. He's leading a study in the prison. He's got leadership there. Yeah, we know what it is, but it's still good. It's still better than he would have been. And this woman from Las Vegas, she was really angry, and she was angry at God, and she was expressing some of that, and she said, you know, I just, I'm just, I'm not going to let him die. She was very emotional, and, and you know, you, you're, just, you're watching this, and you're thinking, man, I know, I feel that too. And the dad with the son in prison said, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to follow him around the rest of his life? Now, there are very few people that can say that to somebody in that kind of pain. He had the right to say it. And you could tell that something went off in her head, and it was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he was trying to work her through how to handle this how to handle this wounding and this fear of loss that you're experiencing. You may, in fact, lose your son. Nobody wants that. That's not the end of your life. It's difficult. It's really difficult. We've been there. God doesn't have the fear that we have. That's why he can be vulnerable. He didn't have any fears. He's completely fear-free. And that's why he's perfect in fatherly authority. That's why he sends his son to be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and our kids as well. Their sins against others and against themselves and, and against us and ours against them. But God would see his son's life and prolong his days, not because he followed him around, afraid that he would lose him. He gave him knowing what would happen, what we would do to him, and then what he would do to us. He would raise him up because only God has the authority to stare down death and make it blink. But he would take us to himself. He would make us our, his own. That's how he conquers. Fatherhood is just one work. Motherhood as well. One role among many in which, you know what happens, what I found has happened, if you're listening, and I do, I do put that on, I think you have to be listening is God preaches the gospel himself to us through this role every day. That our experience in fatherhood, our experience of fatherhood, just to keep it on fathers, is, is an experience in which he is showing us, if we're listening, if we're seeking it, he's showing us even there how he's going to finish what he started and bringing us in on all the assets of his dearly loved son, the Lord Jesus. Who knew no sin, but was treated as if he was guilty of every conceivable sin. All of them. So that we could have something. We would never have had otherwise the righteousness of God. And with that, the great privilege of referring to the God of the universe as our Father and him relating to us as dearly loved sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Would you stand with me? Let's pray, then we're going to sing, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, by that name you have given us that we can call you. You have privileged us so. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this promise, even just looking at one verse of Scripture this morning, and how we see in that verse that you will accomplish everything for us, in us, through us, with us, all of it. You will do because you finish what you start. And thank you for how you use fatherhood as this is Father's Day. For how you break us down, build us back up in the, in the working of it. For how you preach the gospel to us in it. A gospel that combines authority and vulnerability in your person. That, that shows us what it means to be responsible, but not in control. Lord, free us from the anxiety we generate. Because of this fear we dwell in of wanting and needing control. Lord, help us in our frailties and our weakness. Thank you that you cover our sins and that you don't hold them over us. Even if those closest to us do, we look to you, we love you. We know that you're good to us. Even if we could point to nothing of your provision in our lives, even if we think that uh, nothing has happened, you haven't shown us like you've shown our friend or our neighbor Lord, to look into the face of Jesus Christ through the lens of Scripture is to see your faithfulness. When we are faithless, you are faithful and we're grateful. Thank you for all you do and for who you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.